things we could be doing on a Friday night, right? Uh, this is the best thing, being here together and to worship our God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have so much to be thankful to for Him and for all that He's done for us. Thank you for your attendance. Um, thank you for again for allowing me to be here and to, uh, and to preach the Word to you. And I hope the things that um, are going to be said uh, tonight and for the rest of the week is going to be uh, encouraging to you all. My name is Joe. And I come from a land called Uz. And I was a blameless and upright man who feared God. And, and this was not according to my own testimony. This was according to the testimony of God himself. God blessed me beyond measure with an abundance of flocks and herds. And I had a wife, seven sons, and three daughters. I cared greatly about my standing before God. But I also cared about the spiritual welfare of my children. If even for just the possibility that they had sinned, I would regularly have them consecrated and offer burnt offerings on their behalf. But something happened to me that at the time I was not aware of and could not possibly have been aware of. See, the hosts of heaven presented themselves before God, and Satan also stood among them, and Satan tried to convince God that the depth of my faith was only proportionate to the abundant blessings that God had given me. And so Satan challenged God to, to take all of that away from me, all my wealth, all of my prosperity, and that in doing that, I would curse God to his face. Again, I did not know that this was happening in the heavenly places. But God accepted this challenge and allowed Satan to remove these things from me. Well, have you ever had one of those days where you go to the doctor for a simple routine checkup only for him to find a mole or a lump or something serious that, that you had no idea about, but as soon as you leave the doctor's office, your whole world is turned upside down? Or maybe you were at work or maybe you were relaxing at home and, and you get that phone call that just rocks your world. And now what was once an ordinary day is anything but that. That's exactly what happened to me. It seemed like a, a normal day, like every other day. But then news started coming in that raiders and thieves were plundering my flocks and, and striking down my servants who were guarding them. And then fire rained down from heaven, consumed all my sheep. But these tragedies, as awful as they were, paled in comparison to what happened next. A great wind struck the home where all ten of my children were gathered for a feast, and it killed every single one of them. And at the blink of an eye, I lost everything. I was in anguish. I tore my robe. I shaved my head, and I fell to the ground in utter shock. It all seemed absurd. It seemed meaningless. It seemed undeserved. But you know what? While I did enjoy my wealth, and I certainly loved my children beyond measure. None of that defined my relationship with my God. As the Apostle Paul would later say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, I count all things to be lost and view with a surpassing value of knowing the Lord. I had acquired wealth, but the most precious thing that I had, that thing that could not be taken away, was knowing God and being personally known by him. 
And so despite the utter shock of all that had occurred, the intense sorrow that I was feeling, it actually compelled me to do the same thing as those moments of joy do. It forced me into the immediate presence of God. The only thing that it made sense to do, having been brought so low, was to look up. And so I fell to the ground, and I worshipped my Lord. After all, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I would return naked. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, Satan wasn't done accusing me. Um, again, I didn't know all this was, was going on. But despite being proved wrong before, Satan appeared before God a second time to incite him against me. And this time, Satan claimed that taking away a guy's possessions, that's not what's going to break the man so much as taking away his health. And the Lord once again accepted Satan's challenging, a challenge, only commanding that whatever be done to me, my life should be spared. I had not even recovered from the emotional loss of my wealth and my children when Satan smote me with boils throughout my entire body, head to toe. I was miserable. These sores ran with pus and got clogged and infested with worms. I had to take a potsherd to scrape myself. But it only brought me limited relief. At this moment, I was as low as a man could possibly be. I had lost everything of material value, and now my health was decaying before my very eyes. You know, so much attention has been given to my personal suffering throughout the years that it is easy to forget that I had a wife, too. And she had been just as much a victim of this tragedy as I was. When I lost the family fortune, so did she. The loss of my ten children, that was also her loss. But now, she has seen before her eyes a despicable bag of rotting flesh, her husband's life seemingly draining away, and well, this proved too much for her. And her faith just collapsed under the pressure of it all. And in her lack of faith, she actually began to resent my faith. She said to me, do you still hold fast your integrity? Go ahead and curse God so you'll die. She just couldn't understand how, how I could cling to perfect devotion to a supposedly perfect God when reality was so far from perfect. I mean, to her, my, my steadfastness, that wasn't exemplary strength. Rather, she believed it to be an act of cowardice, and she believed I ought to challenge God for afflicting me, even if the consequences of doing so was death. Oh, how Satan must have smiled at this. How he must have smiled as he observed how the one who was supposed to be closer to me than all others, and who should have encouraged me and offered me sympathy, could have become just so overwhelmed and broken that she would utter such foolish words. I mean, it was one thing to lose my material wealth. It's one thing to lose all my children, to lose my health. But one of the worst trials is when those we're closest to, rather than lifting us up and strengthening our faith, conspire to destroy it. And Satan was using her as an instrument to do that very thing. Curse God and die. When you think your marriage is challenging, how would you like to be married to a nugget like that? But you know one thing I remembered is that I was a husband. 
And a husband is a leader. He is to be the voice of reason. That is our responsibility through the good times. It is our responsibility through the bad times. That's why when we get married, we say for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And if I allow her collapse and fail to influence me, then I'd really be no different than my forefather Adam who allowed Eve to negatively influence him into doubting God's use of his divine power. And you know, that's exactly what brought about all this pain and suffering I was experiencing in the first place. No, despite what I was suffering, it was time to tell my wife something she may not have wanted to hear at the time, but what she needed to hear. I said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In other words, for a time, my wife forgot what real faith is all about. And faith is like an axe that is prepared by the fires of the forge for the blows that it must endure. That's how our faith is tempered for the trials of the future. Deep spirituality is the result of walking with the Lord on a sustained basis, not just when it's all smooth sailing. I mean, it's a fickle faith to demand that only good things come in this life, but then resent the idea that I should ever experience bad things. Folks, we live in a fallen world. And to renounce God in this fallen world just because we happen to be recipients of adversity that does not end human difficulty. It only compounds it. But at least I had my three friends with me, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, my three friends. You know, when they heard what happened to me, they came to me like any true friends would, and for seven days, not once, did they leave my side. For seven days, they empathized with me, weeping aloud, tearing their robes, sprinkling dust on their head. They wanted to let me know that my suffering would be their suffering. I mean, just having them there with me that first week as they sat with me in silence, that was a great comfort for me in this trial. But you know, any time, uh, or for any one of you who've ever spent time with a, a suffering friend, you know how, just how hard it can be to just sit in silence and, and watch them suffer without trying to provide any answers whatsoever. I mean, how do you grieve silently with a friend who has to build his life back piece by piece without any certainty of the outcome? I mean, it's human instinct for us to want to identify what went wrong, try to devise a solution right or wrong, and then convince ourselves that the best way that we can help our friend is to eliminate the cause so that they can get back to normal as soon as possible. And that was the great temptation of my three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They simply could not endure the mystery that was my suffering. And this actually caused them to jump to misguided conclusions about its cause. Now, all three of my friends, what they did is they all pushed upon me the same underlying assumption. And that assumption was that there is a universal principle of retribution that unconditionally governs reality. All three proposed that since God is just, 
the reason that people suffer must always be because of something that they did wrong. Uh, Eliphaz, for example, said, remember now, whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvested. Bildad said, if you're pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. And Zophar, who was the most negative among the three, he said, The eyes of the wicked will fail, and there will be no escape for them, and their hope is to breathe their last. And they said a lot of other things along the same lines. And look, I didn't deny the principle that, that whatever man sows, that's what he will reap. That's been a divine truth since the beginning of time. In fact, that's why I was offering sacrifices for my children. If it was for the mere possibility that they had sinned and provoked God's wrath in the process, I want to make sure that was taken care of. But my question was, does this principle of divine retribution, does it explain everything? Are there not exceptions to the general rule? Well, not to my friends. For them, this was an either-or situation. In their estimation... Either God is just, and I'm not righteous, or I am righteous, and therefore God is not just. In their eyes, one of these had to go. And so, of course, their conclusion was that I must not be righteous, that I must be guilty of some kind of secret sin, though none of my friends could produce any evidence of any sin. And despite this lack of evidence that I had done something to bring about all of this suffering, they just assumed that I had done something, and they insisted that I repent. And so what happened to my friends? I mean, that, that in the midst of a horrible tragedy, it would cause them to go from comforting me to lecturing me. Why did they act like they had it all figured out? Maybe they had just completed their first semester at Florida College. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. You can laugh. That's supposed to be funny. But you know what? In reality... They became worthless physicians, sorry comforters, and those whose consolation turned to insults and torment. Can I tell you what was really going on behind the scenes? What was really happening was that Satan wasn't done with me. Satan was working me over in my suffering, working me over through my wife, and now he was working me over through my friends. And it was breaking my spirit. It was, it was hurting me. It was causing me to think in very unrational ways. It was causing me to be rash with my words. I was beginning to lose balance. I was beginning to question myself. And, and more importantly and more devastating, I was beginning to question God. See, from their point of view, my suffering could only be explained by either questioning God's character or questioning my character. And they weren't about to question God's character. And so to them, I must have done something bad to provoke God's wrath. And as my spirit broke, and I began to defend against their accusations, I unfortunately began to overstate my case. I agreed with this principle of retribution on the surface, but I also believed myself to be undeserving of this suffering. And so I began to question whether God could really be just. And I just knew that if I could make my case before Him personally, I'd be exonerated. I mean, surely God would just see how righteous I am and how undeserving of this suffering I was. You see how clever Satan is? In all this dialogue between me and my three friends, Satan was there the entire time with his hidden agenda, 
subtly tempting me to doubt God. And in my defense, I found myself doing what is so common in these situations, overcompensating for this doubt by running to the opposite extreme, giving into my anxieties, and allowing it to make me irrational. I became so fixated on my innocence, it led me to actually becoming a little too self-assured regarding my righteousness, too critical of God's motive behind it all, and too boastful in my self-evaluation. And so my friends stopped talking to me. And when they did, it was at that point that wisdom came from an unlikely place. There was actually a young man whose name was Elihu, who had been listening to all this back and forth between me and my friends. And since he was a lot younger than the four of us, he initially held back from saying anything. But as he listened to my friends accuse me of secret sin solely on the basis of false assumptions, and then he listened to me justify myself at the expense of God's honor, Elihu just couldn't be silent anymore. Elihu expected to hear greater wisdom from us than what he was hearing. And so what he did hear was a disappointment. You know, Elihu, he had the same assumption as me and my friends. He, he agreed that God is just and that God operates the universe according to justice. But in the dialogue between me and my friends, Elihu actually saw bias on both sides. And despite how young he was, he felt like he could bring something fresh to the table that had not yet been considered, and, and that's why this young man spoke up. Elihu didn't claim to understand why I was suffering, but he was certain that I was wrong for defending my own righteousness at the expense of God's just, justice. And rather than deduce this mystery to one of two causes, what Elihu did is he reminded me that God is greater than man. And that means his uh, vision, means his purposes, and, and his wisdom, it transcends us all. And so Elihu, what he did was he drew a more sophisticated conclusion as to why people suffer, simply uh, uh, not because of just hidden sins of the past. He, he uh, proposed that suffering is not necessarily proof of the wickedness of man, and it's not necessarily proof of God's arbitrariness or, or even an indication that he's our enemy. God may inflict suffering as a warning to help us to avoid sin in the future. Or God might allow pain and suffering in order to build a person's character. Or God might allow pain and suffering to teach people valuable lessons that they wouldn't otherwise learn. And so Elihu suggested something that me and my friends actually had not even considered. Namely that the suffering of the righteous, that's not necessarily a token of God's enmity. Sometimes it's evidence of his love for us. Sometimes it's a fine-tuning of our righteousness, not a preparation for destruction, but a protection from, from destruction. Suffering from God is not merely evidence of the executioner's whip, rather of the surgeon's knife. It's not just a fire that leads to destruction. Sometimes it's a fire that leads to refinement toward righteousness. Suffering has this, this unique ability to awaken us to dimensions of God's reality and to the depths of our spiritual imperfection and need. 
In other words, suffering, as mysterious as it is, it actually has the power to deepen our faith and to deepen our godliness. Boy, Elihu dished out some surprising wisdom. Despite my blamelessness and my righteousness, there was a sediment of imperfection in me. A pride that needed to be brought out and eliminated. And I needed to be sensitive to that. And had it not been for my personal suffering, that pride may have never shown itself. Because I had been overly optimistic and I had said things about God that were disrespectful. Oh, I was righteous, all right. But that does not mean that I was sinfully perfect. And as the psalmist would later say, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You know, I contended with my friend's accusations against me, but I had no answer for Elihu. There was a lot of truth in what he said, and I needed to consider these truths. <coughs> well, as I was riding my emotional roller coaster, I challenged God. I said, oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. I was hoping for an audience with God. But boy, did I end up getting way more than I bargained for. See, God did show up to answer me personally and in a whirlwind, no less. And he said to me, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Oh, boy. And it was at this point that the creator of the entire universe took me on a tour of the wonders of creation, and I found myself not putting him on trial. He put me on trial. He asked me all kinds of questions about the origins of the earth and its structure, the, the boundaries of the sea, the design of the heavenly bodies, and whether or not I knew how to control the weather. He asked me if I knew how to provide food for all animal life, the intricacy of their birthing patterns, the intricacies of their nesting patterns. Well, well of course I didn't know all that. But God did. He has his eyes on it all. And that was exactly his point. See, my friends and I, we had made all kinds of assumptions about how God runs the universe according to justice because in our foolishness, we thought that we had a broad enough perspective about creation to make such assumptions. But God deconstructed these assumptions by reminding me of something that I should have already known, and that is that God's creation is awesome, it is massive, it is complicated and mysterious. God's creation is fine-tuned to such a degree that I couldn't even fathom, and yet God is wise enough and He's powerful enough that He has His eyes on all of it. But me? All I had to go on was what God chose to reveal to me as well as the small horizon of my life experiences. And that means my outlook on things was severely limited. So you know what I learned? I learned that if I didn't have the knowledge 
or the wisdom to understand the mystery that is God's creation, how could I ever understand the mystery that is suffering? God's point, though he never explicitly said it, was that my suffering may have looked like on the surface like divine injustice, but I could never know that to be the case, seeing as how I was unable to view things from a larger context. Brethren, we, we human beings, we are a finite race. I mean, we don't have a knowledge of how to run this world and, and everything in it. We are, we are ignorant of 99.9% of its processes, aren't we? So how can we be in any position to make an accusation of injustice against the cosmic creator of this universe? So my response, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. But God wasn't done with me. He actually pressed his case a bit further. He asked me uh, in, in so many words. He said, uh, Job, how about I just turn things over to you for a little while and let you micromanage the universe according to your strict sense of justice? How about you just go ahead and, and, and sternly punish every evil deed of every single person at every moment with exact precision? Well, of course I couldn't do that. I mean, carrying that out in a world as complicated as ours it's never as black and white as me and my friends try to make it. And that was precisely the point. And so it was at that point that um, God goes into great detail about these two fantastic creatures, uh, Behemoth and, and Leviathan. Uh, these were well-known creatures from my day, creatures of wonder, extraordinary strength, incredible power. They were not intrinsically evil. In fact, God brags on, them, brags on them quite a bit. But you know what they really did? They served as two great examples of the danger and the disorder that is planet Earth. See, this world is full of amazing and abundant blessings and goodness and beauty but this world is also not always safe, is it? In fact, this world can be very unpredictable. It can be very dangerous, just like these two creatures. And the reality is, whether we like it or not, sometimes we human beings just get caught up in its crosshairs. God never explained to me why I was personally suffering. He didn't tell me about Satan's accusations and attacks against me or the reason for it. He didn't even tell me that my personal history would be written up to encourage the faith of other believers until the end of the world. And he didn't tell me that soon afterwards he'd make everything all right. God merely reminded me that we live in an amazing world of mysterious complexity and wonder. And as our world is right now, it is not designed to prevent suffering. But just because I was personally suffering... That did not put me in any position to begin challenging the wisdom of God or the way that God chooses to run things. And so what I learned from God putting me on trial 
is that in an absence of reason for why things happen the way they do, I simply needed to trust him. Brethren, we are not going to force God to hold his breath by holding ours. You understand? Only a person too self-distracted by his own self-interest could ever allow the question of why we suffer to be a deal-breaker with God. Faith demands so much more. My response, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here now I will speak, I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And because of my newfound humility and repentance, God restored my fortunes and my family twofold. My name is Job, and the record of my suffering has remained intact thousands of years later to be a blessing to all those who have suffered like I have and may not understand why. My suffering was not an occasion for God to receive a glory over Satan only. That was not the only reason for it. It also became an occasion for God to deepen my own insight and my own trust and faith and my godliness. And if we do not learn to develop faith toward God regarding those things that we don't understand, Satan will eventually come and snatch away what faith we do have. I did not know why God was allowing me to suffer as I did, but I knew the God I served. And that was enough for me. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. And if you are here tonight, and we can help you to draw closer to your Redeemer, we're going to stand and we're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to make your way toward the front. Let us know how we can help you while we stand.